And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Mike Pence was always something of a sphinx to me, a relentlessly loyal understudy to a president who was as tumultuous and profane as Pence's reserved and pious, maybe as odd a couple as we've ever seen in politics. But Pence, who just published his memoir called So Help Me God, came to the Institute of Politics this week and sat down to chat with me before an audience of 800 students. From the book and from our conversation, I got a much deeper and more textured sense of the man who will forever be remembered for what he did and what he wouldn't do on that fateful January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. Here's that conversation. Mr. Vice President, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you, David. It's an honor to be here. It really is. First of all, I didn't realize until I read your book, Mr. Vice President, that uh, this is sort of a homecoming for you. Your, your folks were raised like miles from here on the south side of Chicago. Well, they were. Well, first, David, I want to thank you. I want to thank the Institute of Politics. I, I want to congratulate you. I have, uh, I have mixed feelings about the success of your career. Uh, <laughs> But I respect it, and uh, I respect the, the 10 years that you've led the Institute of Politics thank here. You. And I, I want to thank you thank for that. You. Thank um, you. Thank you. And to be here at the University of Chicago, a, a legendary institution among students that uh, you had already achieved academic excellence to be able to come here. And so it's an honor to be with each of you and members of the faculty and the leadership. But yeah, this is a little bit of a, our second hometown. When I was growing up, I, I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana, went to a small college on the Ohio River, went to Indianapolis, uh, met my wife, Karen, who is with us today, my wife of 37 years, the former second lady of the United States. But my parents grew up about, as you said, uh, as a crow flies, about four miles from right here. Mom and Dad grew up on the south side of Chicago. My grandfather uh, got off a boat uh, on Ellis Island uh, in 1923 and uh, got on a train and came to Chicago. And they grew up in the neighborhoods on the south side. And so every family holiday, every time we, were, we would drive up uh, the interstate from that small Indiana town and... Uh, uh, and spend time with our extended family that uh, that still calls Chicago home. So it, it really is our second hometown. He was a CTA bus driver, is that right? He was. My, my grandfather... For 40 uh, years? He drove a bus for 40 years here in Chicago. was one of the proudest men I ever knew. His name was Richard Michael Cawley, and that was how Michael Richard Pence got to be Vice President of the United States of America. That bus went a long way. Uh, but, uh, you know, what I was thinking, because I'm so parochial, was Irish Catholic family in mm -hmm. Chicago, mm -hmm. Democrats. If your mom had hung around, do you realize you could have been an alderman? <laughs> you could have been a ward committeeman. And, and, and at the time that your grandfather was driving that bus, being an alderman or being a ward committeeman, those were considered higher offices here than the vice president. <laughs> I'm so. sure they were. I'm sure they were. Um, <laughs> so, I, but, you know, my dad arrived here in 1922 from Eastern Europe, just about the same time that your mm -hmm. grandfather arrived. And I'm sitting here 
and I was the senior advisor to the President of the United States, who happened mm -hmm. to be an African-American man. Mm -hmm. uh, you were, uh, you're sitting here as a, vi a former Vice President of the United States. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you think there's more chapters in that story. We'll get to that later. But it does, you know, I have such a rich appreciation for this country because of right. what it provided my immigrant family. And I guess my question is, how do we, mm. we have a problem at the border that we have to deal with, and everybody should acknowledge that. Sure. How do we stop the demonization of immigrants? Well, first, I, I didn't, I thought I'd read pretty far down the bio, but I'm, I love that we share being second generation Americans. Because I, I tell people, um, the American dream is not, uh, for me and for my family, a bumper sticker. It's, it's what we lived. I mean, that, that, that Irishman's brogue still rings in my ears, his belief in this country, seeing my father. That's why you could have been an alderman. Uh, that's right. <laughs> seeing mom and dad uh, build a small business in a small town in Indiana. And I tell people that uh, on Inauguration Day 2017, when I was looking out across the National Mall and the day I raised my right hand surrounded by my family, I, I just couldn't help but think of my grandfather. Yeah. I couldn't help but think um, um, that he was looking down from glory and he was probably thinking two things. Number one, he was probably very surprised. <laughs> he knew me pretty well. <laughs> Michael? Uh, but all kidding aside, I, I, think he, I had to think he was looking down and saying that he was right, not about me, but about America. Because the legend in my family is that my great-grandmother bought him that one-way ticket on that ship to come to the United States because she said, there's a future there for you. And by that, she meant there's a boundless future, that in America, anybody can be anybody. It was deeply humbling for me to think of him on that day. And it's one of the reasons, as I write in So Help Me God, that uh, when I was in the Congress of the United States, I was actually chairman of the House Conservative Caucus. I, uh, as you know, David, I weighed in on immigration yeah. reform in America. We have a broken immigration system in America, and for the sake of those who've come before, for the sake of those who will come to this country in the years to come, we have to fix this broken immigration system once and for all. Well, and presumably those who are here already. That's right. Um, but, but my question is, there seems to be political currency in demonizing immigrants who I think most of whom come here for the same reason that your grandfather and my father came here. And how do, we, how do we take the acidity out of that debate? How do we keep immigrants from being used as, as sort of political pawns? Well, I, I think it really all begins with the belief that a nation without borders is not a nation. I, I don't think that's a Republican view. I think that's the view of well, let's stipulate every that. American. Let, uh, let's stipulate that. That's but, right. I mean, I agree with you on that. But I, I think the key going forward, which we had made great progress on during the Trump-Pence administration, was really securing our border through a combination of efforts. We, we built hundreds of miles of wall, security, internal enforcement, but probably the most significant thing that I do write about in the book uh, was that we negotiated with Mexico a historic agreement that people that were applying for asylum in the United States would simply uh, remain in Mexico while their application was being processed. The combination of those things in our first three years reduced illegal immigration and asylum abuse by 90%. And I think, David, I think it created the conditions where had we gotten a second term, we were already 
laying out the plans for a merit-based immigration reform system that we would overhaul the entire system that I think the American people are prepared to do as well as deal with people that are here illegally now once we have the border secured, which, which was the case up until those very same policies were overturned by the Biden administration on day one. You think these young people who are here uh, because their parents brought them here as kids who know no other country, many of whom serve in the military, who some may be here in this auditorium or promising uh, young uh, students. Do you think we should finally clarify their status permanently? Well, you know, I was very proud during that government shutdown a couple of years into our administration that, uh, that we put on the table solving the dreamers problem and regularizing the status of dreamers. And I think it's an idea whose time has come. I, I was disappointed that um, yeah, the Democratic right leadership that. in the Congress didn't make that deal in exchange for funding for the border wall, but um, it was something that, that our administration, the president, was prepared to do. Um, and, and to your point, the people that were brought here as young people, and maybe some people who are here today, through no fault of your own, and I've met, I've met young men and women that have put on the uniform of the United States. Yeah. And earn the citizenship of this country As with great distinction. Um, uh, thank you for mentioning our boy. My my unworthy son-in-law is also in the United States <laughs> Navy. Um, but I, I don't think there's any question that we can solve that issue. We can solve other issues, but I do believe it it all begins with uh, ending what has been for decades now and has greatly increased is a crisis on our southern border. Five million people coming yeah, no, across I, I, the border. I, I, like I said, I stipulate that problem has to be stopped. I just wonder, my whole uh, concern is how do we stop weaponizing problems instead of solving them? Mm. And how do we make it less perilous to try and solve them? Uh, you know, to reach across the aisle, to make good faith deals. Uh, I'm, you know, the frustration is people feel like every problem is evaluated for its political worth. Uh, well, rather than the, the I think that's a very profound question, and, uh, and it applies to a broad range of issues that we've not been able to solve in this country. And I think it all begins with respect and with civility. I, I really do. I, you know, um, a friend of mine said years ago, he said, there's two kinds of people in politics, people that are called and people that are driven. And as you could read in So Help Me God, I've been both. I've let myself and my ambition get ahead of my values and what my faith teaches me to the way you treat other people, whether they agree with you on issues or not. But when the opportunity came back around 10 years later and I ran for Congress You lost again, a couple of races for Congress. I did. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, lost, we lost them big, David. Just trying we, to get them to catch up yeah, with the no, story. we went down here. hard, uh, head yeah. first, without a helmet. But... But we learn. We learned lessons. And, but I didn't just lose an election. As I wrote, you know, I, I really lost a lot of self-respect because I'd allowed myself to, to, you know, go deep into the whole political realm that, that you and I see on a regular basis of negative personal attacks. And when the time came back around and Karen and I felt called to pack up our three little kids, move back to our hometown and run for a third time, we just determined to do it in a way that would honor God and that would live up to what our faith required of us, the, uh, to do unto others as, uh, as we would have them do unto us. And uh, 
I've, I've aspired, however imperfectly, to, to conduct my career that way in various roles. But I do think that democracy depends on heavy doses of civility. I mean, there's a reason why in Congress you have these, you know, rules about the way that members address each other, like my, you know, my good friend or the gentle lady from Massachusetts. Um, and, and those are all because civility is, is where you can create the environment to find common ground. I, I can say you've got bad ideas, and David, I think you've got a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> but without saying but you're I a bad appreciate person, the civility. Without, well, without, <laughs> thank you. Without, without saying you're a bad person. And I, right. I think uh, that's how the American people conduct themselves on most days. I just think we've got to have government as good as our people again. Let me, let me ask you the elephant in the room question, which is I'm sure that you believe that. I know you wrote a piece back when you ran for Congress called uh, Confessions of a Negative Campaigner. I could probably write a similar piece called Producer of Negative Ads. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you worked for and with a president yeah. who, whatever his epitaph is, the word civility is not likely to be included. Um, so, uh, and that must have, I'm, I'm wondering what you, you know, I, I read this book cover to cover and I enjoyed Thank reading you. it, but the, Thank you. I'm honored but the, the thing that was noteworthy, to, one of the things that was noteworthy to me was how much you went out of your way to explain, you know, sort of intemperance to, or omit incidents of intemperance, but they were there. And that sort of defined our politics in a way. And, mm. you know, every action causes a reaction and so on. Did you ever talk to him and say, uh, dude, let's bring it down a level? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, look at the time. I, uh... <laughs> no, look, David, look. Um, uh, president Trump was not only my president, uh, he was my friend. But we're very different people. Um, and, you know, I, I know that many people wondered how someone who had committed their career to civility uh, could partner with someone with a much more confrontational approach to politics. And uh, I accept that. It's a fair question. But it's just because people didn't understand our sense of calling. When, when I got the phone call to whether I would be willing to be considered to be added to the ticket, it was something Karen and I, as we always do, took to prayer. We talked with our kids about it, and we spent some time with them as a family. But I, I must tell you, with great respect, uh, but the, the direction the country was headed after eight years of the Obama administration, I thought uh, if eight more years in that direction occurred, uh, that... Uh, that it would take the country in a place that was not consistent with my aspirations and ideals about, about, uh, about the country, about limited government, about free market economics, about, about the ideals and values that I was raised to believe in. And so I, my question was, if I, if I could help the country go back to the things that I think make America strong and prosperous, uh, I was determined to do it. And... Um, and we ultimately said yes without hesitation to join the ticket. And, but for me, that sense of calling was, my calling was to help President Trump be successful in the presidency that the American people elected him to lead. And 
Uh, and that, I think, was both the content that I heartily endorsed, um, about rebuilding our military, reviving the economy with tax cuts, conservatives on our courts. But also, it was a style, and I respected that style. And it, it, it came ultimately from my respect for the American people, that the American people had chosen him to be the president. My job in humility was to simply support him and the presidency that he was elected to advance. And... Uh, that came from my faith in the American people, and it also it also came from my faith that that uh, that providence guides this nation, and uh, as the Bible says, that uh, um, you know he he raises up leaders, and I believe he has in the course of this nation leaders that you've served, leaders that I've served. Well, just I don't want to dwell on this, but um, what you said earlier, and this is why I raised it, was that you think that everything begins with civility. Uh, do you think that he advanced the cause of civility in our politics? I, I must tell you that I, I think during our administration, uh, civility took a hit on both sides of the aisle. I mean, there's, a, there's an anecdote. I'm really honored you read the book. I'm, I'm grateful. He showed it to me. It's like all threadbare, the whole thing. Although I get you can buy it that way, so it looks pre-read. Yeah, used, it's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But Inauguration Day, I, I was uh, in the Oval Office, his first visit there, and my son Michael, the Marine, was with me, and if you remember his family, and then he and I were walking down the portico, which he walked a thousand times, mm-hmm. back to the residence. And, um, you know, it was quite a moment, just the two of us walking. We'd been inaugurated that day. We were getting ready to go to the inaugural balls. And uh, he looked up at the side of the White House, all brightly lit, and he said to me, it's... It's, it's, and I said, it's humbling. Yeah. And he said, yeah, that's right. It's humbling. That's uh, interesting because people don't really associate that word with him either. Yeah. (laughs) He did. He said, that's right. It's humbling. (laughs) And, uh, and then I said, as we walked away back in a stack outside the Oval Office was the newspapers of the day. And the top of it was a copy of that day's Washington Post, the headline of which was, the quest to impeach Donald Trump starts today. And literally, in my experience, and you always talk about the honeymoon, right? When there's a, you know, a new administration comes in and there's a certain period of time, people get, there was not only not a honeymoon, there was the, the, the theories about Russian collusion were being talked about in the weeks before our inauguration. And um, it simply never let up. And so... Uh, for me, the opposition that we faced by many Democrats, but allies in the, their allies in the media, um, and frankly, the president's own pugilistic style really defined that season. Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I, my book has been described as one of the most fulsome defenses of the Trump-Pence record is because I try and capture both. I try and say, here's what we accomplished for the American people uh, under a gale force wind of opposition from before day one. Can I, can I ask but I you? do think right now, I would say to this, that, that I think that the American people long for leadership that had the potential to unite our country around our highest ideals and reflects the civility and decency that the American people show each other every day. And I think they long for that in both political parties. Is that what happened in the last election? Because I have to tell you that uh, I've had my pundit wings taken from me 
because I like so many, all my life I bet against the conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom was Republicans were going to have a really big year. Yeah, I wish you'd been right, David. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings on that. But, uh, <laughs> but, the, um, but tell me why, normally if the president with a low approval rating, econo- e- economic travails equal big gains for the opposition party, what do you think happened, and do you think this was a repudiation of a style of politics? Well, the, I, I traveled to 35 states in the last year and a half, campaigned for members of the House, Senate, and governor's candidates. And the one common denominator that I've observed is that our candidates that were focused on the future, that were focused on the issues the American people are struggling with today, which are you know, record gasoline prices, 40-year high inflation, a crisis at the border, a crime wave in our major cities, like what the people of Chicago deal with, which grieves my heart. Uh, the candidates that were focused on those issues and on solutions did quite well. But our candidates that were focused on the past, particularly those that were focused on relitigating the last election, did not fare as well. And so it's one of the reasons why when I was campaigning for Governor Brian Kemp in a primary that was really decided along those fault lines, one was, one was about questioning the last election and Governor Kemp was simply about talking about an extraordinary record of accomplishment in the future. I said then, for the Republican Party to prevail, we, we need to be the party of the future. And I think our candidates that succeeded proved that and I've heard you. On election I've, heard, I've heard you give this answer throughout this tour, and it's an elegant answer. But just to be clear, what you're saying is that the people who focused on election denial, uh, many of whom were recruited by President Trump because he demanded that, uh, put the Republican Party in jeopardy in that election. I, I do. I believe that people that were focused on on the last election that were challenging the legitimacy of the last election did not fare well. But this election denial issue to me is it's, it's an important one. I'd say to put it in context, January 6th was a tragic day. Um, but thanks to the courage of Capitol Hill police, federal officials, we quelled the violence and Republicans and Democrats reconvened on the very same day, and we completed our work under the Constitution of the United States of America. And I'll always be humbled to have been a small part of that. But, and so I've made it very clear what my view was of the, of the rhetoric both before that tragic day and the rhetoric that's followed. But I think it's also fair, David, to say that in the four years of our administration, Hillary Clinton said that our election had been stolen many times over. But she conceded. She called and she conceded. Okay, she conceded. Then she said the election was stolen for the next three years. Um, we, we literally had many in certain arteries of the mainstream media propagating what came to be a completely baseless uh, allegation well, can of I collusion with a foreign on, on, power and questioning on, the legitimacy of our... Well, so I, think, I think both parties need to... Let's strengthen laws about election integrity. Let's make sure every vote counts in America. And then let's stand down after elections on questioning the outcome Mm -hmm. of free and fair elections Mm -hmm. in the United States in both parties. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I want to go back to the issue because you just raised it again because there was a line in the book that really caught my eye. You know, there was this, there was this uh, incident, I would call it, where the president was in Helsinki standing next to Vladimir Putin, a man you know very well and I think had assessed properly in your book. Okay. Uh, but, you know, he, the president stood next to Putin, was asked about the idea that Russia interfered in the last election, and, he, and that's what the intelligence services said happened. And he said, well, I asked him about it, and, and I see no reason why. And he's, you know, answered, and I see no reason why it would be Russia. And you talk about in the book how you, you know, you had a little sit-down with him about this in the next day at the cabinet meeting. He said, no, I meant there is no reason why it would not be Russia. But you had a confrontation with Putin a short time later in Singapore, and you were very clear with Putin, and you said, and you repeated it twice, we know what you did in 2016. So when you say baseless conspiracy theories, I understand you're talking about collusion. Yes. But the Russians were up to something, weren't they? The Russians are always up to something. Yeah. But in but, that election. But the theory that, and, and, you know, I spoke at a cyber conference in New York City, it made it very clear that Russia meddled in the 2016 election. It's not, it's not a debatable point. Our intelligence services confirmed that. But it wasn't on behalf of any particular candidate, and it was not in collusion with either campaign. It was, it was to sow discord. This is what Russia does in free societies to, to and destabilize that's true. They do it all governments. over the world, but just They to, do, just and they did that here. And when I met with Putin, I... He asked for a, a private meeting uh, uh, when we were in Singapore, and I was right. representing the United States at a conference, and um, uh, we had what we call a pull-aside, and uh, he spoke to me about an upcoming summit, and you talked about the need to have a new um, nuclear mm -hmm. treaty, and, and I looked at him and I said, well, uh, President Putin, I have something I'd like to say to you, and he said, in Russian, go ahead. And I said, um, we know what happened in 2016 and it can't happen again. And at that point he began to feign ignorance. He, what, he looked at Lavrov, his foreign right. secretary, I, and no, said, no. I, what's he talking? I heard Lavrov say in English, elections. And then he proceeded in Russian to say that we had nothing to do with that. It was nothing, we're, that was, wasn't our government. And I said, I said, Mr. President, I'm very aware of what your position is on this. But I want you to know that we know what happened in 2016, and it can't happen again. And I, I would tell you that thanks to our intelligence services leaning into the effort, beginning in the 2018 midterm elections, uh, we have, I, I can't get into it, but we've marshaled a much more effective response against Russian meddling. But Russia did not collude with either campaign. No, but one thing you said... Russia sowed discord. The in intelligence America. services, the conclusion, at least so far, has been publicly reported, uh, was was that they they did uh, act on, and I'm not saying this is a separate issue than collusion, right. but they did act on behalf of Trump. They had personal animus toward Hillary Clinton. I, so you're saying that you don't accept that part of what the intelligence services concluded? Look, I I uh, uh, I don't. 
Okay. Look, our, our administration is the only administration so far in the 21st century where Russia did not attempt to redraw international lines by force. Under the Bush administration, they rolled tanks into Georgia. Under the Obama administration, of course, Crimea. And of course, we're all continuing to witness the, the heartbreaking savagery of Russia mm-hmm. military invasion of Ukraine. You think we should keep supporting Ukraine, by the way, because some of your colleagues on the Republican side I think the United States of America needs to send an unambiguous message that we will stand with the freedom fighters in Ukraine until Russia withdraws or is defeated on Mm -hmm. their land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Period. uh, Thanks for your voice on that. uh, Well, you know, my father was from Ukraine, so I feel a particular kinship uh, with people there. I want to move on. You, you mentioned the problem that we have with public safety here in Chicago. And I, I, I would be remiss mm. if I didn't say, that, you know, their shootings and killings are a, a, an almost daily occurrence mm. in the radius right around here in the old neighborhood where your mother was from. Uh, and so, and a lot, and I will tell you, Mr. Vice President, that 40 to 50 percent of the guns that are used in these crimes uh, originated, were sold in the state of Indiana. And this is one where you and I have a difference um, because I don't, yes, we have social problems and we have mental illness in this country, but it's not greater than anywhere else in the world. We, we're not, we're not, we don't have an epidemic of mental illness here that no other countries aren't feeling. What we do have is an epidemic uh, of guns. We have Four, 400, 450 million guns, more than every man, woman, and child here. And we have exponentially higher, 46% of the privately owned guns in the world are here in America. We have exponentially more gun violence. Um, and I don't know what the answer is, okay? I'm not, <laughs> I think that that is a discussion that we need to have. But we can't ignore the fact that the proliferation of guns has put a lot of people in jeopardy, and we need to figure out what to do about it, don't we? Well, David, I, I appreciate the sincerity of, of your, your sense of this. And for me, it, it really begins with first principles. The, the right of law-abiding citizens to keep and bear arms is enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. And I'm as passionate about the Second Amendment as I am about the First Amendment. Um, and, and we, have to, we have to meet this moment without compromising uh, the rights of, uh, of, of law-abiding Americans. Um, that, that being said, I write a fair amount of it, because Karen and I, um, it, it was our duty to travel to Sutherland Springs, Texas, after a man had walked into a church and opened fire during Sunday morning services. Um, an unspeakable act of violence. We, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, school yeah. shooting that took place during our administration. Um, I will say, although it didn't get a lot of coverage, it, as you know, David, because you follow these things closely, we, we actually passed bipartisan legislation in the wake of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas that was endorsed by the Sandy Hook Parents Association and the NRA. Right. We yeah. Strengthened right. background checks provided stuff, law yes. enforcement. I think what what I can tell you I hear around the country is really two things that may be common ground. Number one is that I hear from law enforcement officers everywhere I go uh, that um, 
that there's the waning support of law enforcement in this country, um, the reflexive tendency to, to assume the worst in a law enforcement uh, crisis um, has, has undermined um, the ability of law enforcement personnel to do their job and also some common sense things. My, you know, you kind of mentioned my family. My Uncle Phil was a police officer here in Chicago for 25 years. In fact, I met somebody at the Union League yesterday who served with him. Um, he was on Mayor Harold Washington's security detail. Is that right? He was. An, uh, I, my, an old client of mine. He, um, yeah, my, my uncle, who, he was one of my heroes. When we'd come up and visit family, you know, he'd come walking out of the back room wearing his uniform. Me and my three brothers would just look up at him and just admire him. And I still hold police officers in the same regard everywhere I go in the country. They're the best men and women in this nation. And, but I do believe that, that some common sense reforms that would allow law enforcement officers to, to lean into efforts. I know it's not particularly popular for many on the left, but stop and frisk laws that allow police officers with probable cause to intervene if there's someone who is uh, walking down the street and looks like they're headed for trouble. Um, it made a big difference in the city of New York, uh, your old hometown. I think that those kind of changes and broad support for law enforcement yeah. is a big part of it. The second piece is, and this is something I know we agree on, is when I was governor of Indiana, one of my last official acts was we broke ground on the first mental health hospital to be built in Indiana in 30 years. And what I heard from people in law enforcement was that they would, whenever they would get involved with someone with a serious mental health issue, maybe a, a minor criminal offense, but then they'd realize they were dealing, yeah. there was nowhere to send them except right. the county lockup. Right. I, mean, I just, I don't want to lose, I, I, I appreciate what, I, I don't want to lose uh, the time because there's so much to talk about. But we about. need more ins we need more infrastructure, institutional mental health care so that families I, I, that have a troubled family member have somewhere to send them to get I, I, help. I, I agree. And in terms of law enforcement, I do think that if you go into the affected communities, they're not asking for fewer police. They're asking for uh, safety and security That's and right. respect. That's right. And civil rights. And I don't think the two are necessarily... Uh, exclusive but it doesn't it does it does beg the question about what do we do because i will introduce you to a whole bunch of chicago police none of whom i'm related to unfortunately because i'd love to match you your uncle with my uncle uh <laughs> but um but who would say we're we're drowning in a sea of sure. guns and you talk to young people who had been involved with gangs that have now reform themselves they say we could get anything we want on the streets of Chicago, even though Chicago has some tougher laws. Now, in the Northeast, where the states have tougher gun laws, there, there's been more success. But I, I don't want to... Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it here because I want to move on. No. I also appreciate the fact that hunting and sportsmen, sports activity, these are part of the culture of downstate Illinois, large places of Indiana, places across Michigan, right. southwest Michigan, where I spend a lot of time. And I'll just quote my old uh, boss, Barack Obama, who made this speech in the state assembly. There has to be a way to preserve your traditions and save our children. There has to be a way to do both those things. And we ought to, in good faith, it seems to me, pursue that. 
Let me ask you about another thing. Uh, in the election... Um, but it's also, it is also about protecting our families, too. I mean, the, the, but they, the, the proliferation of guns hasn't right. f- protected our family. But uh, it's, it, I, I tell you what, it doesn't get a lot of coverage. Greenwood Park Mall, Indiana, a gunman went into the mall just a few short months ago and uh, had hundreds of rounds of ammunition on him and intended to take a lot of lives. And one young man, 22 years old, from Shelbyville, Indiana, uh, pulled out his firearm, took the man down, and um, and literally, I think, saved dozens of lives that day. So, it, whether it's in-home protection, um, uh, I, I think the I, I will say this: it's a cliche, but it has the benefit of being true. Is that the uh, the the best response to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, and we showed that in Indiana. And I I do believe I do believe at the end of the day. Um, so you think more there, guns is the answer? More guns the answer? Well, in for law-abiding citizens, I would I would tell you, I think we need to focus on people that are committing crimes, committing violence, and we need to give law enforcement uh, the tools they need, and we need to have prosecutors that, when law enforcement brings them in, uh, don't just turn them right back out on the street. I think uh, we we have to. You and I totally agree. We've got to be a country of law and order and my heart grieves for what the people of chicago deal with this is to me a, a very special place one of the greatest cities yeah. in the world no, and, and, and we have to s- work together to end this scourge when you say you're passionate about the second amendment i know i know you're also passionate about children uh so uh you know just reading this book you've got kids you can imagine what it's like you yeah. know um mother's uh waiting in anxiety to see if their seven-year-old comes home from school safely. Let me move on. In this last election, we talked about the election denial issue. Abortion rights was also another big issue. And, you know, one of the reasons the opposition party loses these midterms is turnout. Generally, the party in power doesn't have the turnout. Do you think, and I'm looking at the results, and it seems to me like, the desire for uh, abortion rights post-Dobbs was a motivating factor for uh, turnout. And you saw five referendums in five different states, one in Kentucky where people turned back a very uh, severe restriction on abortion, probably would have been the most severe in the country, and then four states where they enshrined abortion rights in the laws of the state, uh, Michigan being one of them, where there were there were there was big turnout, and a lot of it seemed to be associated uh, with that. What it what I know you, I know your position, and you don't have to go into. Everyone knows your position on uh, on abortion. But what message do you take from that? Well, well, thank you, David. Not, and uh, look, I, I, as you said, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. It's a deeply held conviction for me and for my family. And I I welcome the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade because it returned the question of abortion to the states and to the American people where it belonged. As many of the scholars in the room may not know that even Ruth Bader Ginsburg questioned the legal foundation under Roe versus Wade. Um, and she was a great woman and a brilliant mind. But not the principle of abortion not, rights. Not on the principle, but the legal foundation okay. on which it was decided. So I think it was right for the Supreme Court to return it to the American people. And with regard to the election, I would tell you that my observation is that 
that our candidates who explained their position um, uh, uh, fared well. Uh, but those that allowed their position to be defined by capable Democrat candidates and political organizations did not fare as well. I mean, I think the American people don't begrudge uh, one another of our values. We, we respect them. But um, uh, I think that, if, that to the extent people in my party allowed them, their position to be defined in, in, uh, in negative terms, without saying exactly what their position was on the issue. Um, uh, I think it played out. But at the end of the day, you know, I've, I've told people in the pro-life movement, I said it may, it, may, it may take us as long to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in all 50 states as it took us to overturn Roe versus Wade. But um, for as long as I live, I, I will be a champion for the unborn and a champion for the sanctity of life. I believe the most prosperous nation in the history of the world um, can welcome our children for either to be raised uh, by uh, their birth families or or the forever families through adoption and um, um, and I, I I welcome the developments this year by the Supreme Court with a with a great no I, I I know you do we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. There are probably people here who are thinking that freedom is such an important word to you and such an important value. It is. And if you're a woman, uh, the idea that government, I mean, you've talked often about government overreach and so on, that government would decide, even if you're a victim of rape or even if you're a victim of incest, that you should... uh, be forced to carry that child, or if you if you uh, if if the child is uh, guaranteed, uh, you know, misery uh, because of some uh, medical condition that was detected early. You understand why people would say, "What about my freedom?" I do understand, and I. Um and specifically on the point, I, as you may know, during my years in Congress, I supported the exceptions for rape uh, and incest in the life of the mother in the, the Hyde Amendment um, that was passed again and again in the Congress. But as Do you governor, think that should I, be in every state law? Well, I think that's up to the people of those states. I, I just trust the American people to sort this out in a way that's consistent with their values and their aspirations. For me, I'm I'm pro-life, my very core, but I I just trust that the American people will find a way forward. But I, I think in addition to moving pro-life legislation and protections, I'm going to continue to be a voice to say we need to be as committed to the newborn as we are to the unborn. We need to have states that are moving pro-life legislation that are also saying we're going to come alongside women who are facing uh, unexpected pregnancies. We're going to help them to that moment of birth, and then we're going to help them after the moment of birth. We, that, well, yeah. To me, that's, that's profound. But well, you know, in, you're not, if, in the state I, of I Indiana, certainly believe we should be investing in uh, postnatal and early child care. Well, as, uh, as you know, from, I, I, I signed the first um, um, uh, pre-K 
funding in the state of Indiana yeah, yeah, for kids. Yeah. And, and I also signed a bill that, that banned abortion on the basis of sex, uh, race, or disability um, in the state of Indiana. It went to the Supreme Court, was not upheld. Um, but I must tell you that, um, uh, Ed, as, uh, as, as you, you know um, very deeply, there, there are Americans with disabilities that are living rich and fulfilling lives. And, um, and I think we, I think yeah. we, we do well. I'm to the put father of one of them. Those. And I want to ask you about that. My daughter uh, was seven months when, into her life. She started having seizures that didn't stop for 20 years. I just really admire your family's Thank devotion. You. But one of the things we experienced, Mr. Vice President, was we found, I, I thought I had very good health insurance until someone got sick. And she needed, her problem was so complex that she needed very expensive medication that our insurance couldn't cover. Mm -hmm. And we quickly found out that we couldn't get other insurance because she had what we, that was the first time we heard the word pre-existing condition. And we almost went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune at the time. I wept the night the Affordable Care Act passed. Uh, because I thought there'll be millions of families across this country who wouldn't have to go through the terror that my family went through. And I know you, you've been very critical of that law, but shouldn't we all be free? Of, I mean, shouldn't every American be free of that, like, impossible situation? Shouldn't every American have basic uh, health care? And shouldn't those health care policies um, not discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions? Well, first, I, I, again, I want to commend you. Your family story has been an inspiration to people around the country. Thank you. And I'm so glad that Lauren is doing so well and thriving. Thank you. Um, my problem with Obamacare persists to this day. <laughs> is I, I just thought it was wrong to order Americans to buy health insurance whether they want it or need it or not. Uh, I, I actually thought it was unconstitutional for the federal government to order you to purchase a commercial product in the form of health insurance. And that was the essence of our objection. By the time it went to the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts and a majority ruled that that was actually a tax, and so it could be passed as a tax. Um, Can I just interrupt you for one second? Those are, those are old arguments, but that, it, no, that, no, but I want to ask you one question. Objection. In, in Indiana, yeah. and I don't know the answer to this question, yeah. so I never went to law school, so I never learned that thing about don't ask the question that you don't know I went the to law school, to. but it didn't take. <laughs> Um, in Indiana, do you require insurance when someone owns a car? Uh, yes, you do. And I heard that analogy a lot of times. I heard it when Mitt Romney carried an earlier version of Obamacare in Massachusetts. But I did, it's a constitutional issue. I just never thought the federal government, that our founders designed a government that should order people to buy certain products in the, in the commercial market. That being said, okay. let me say a yes. couple of things. And as we were working through an effort to repeal and replace Obamacare, which was unsuccessful, I'm candid about that in the book. Yes. Um, we made it very Thanks clear. Thanks to the guy both of us admire, Senator yeah, McCain. I know you were working hard. Um, <laughs> we, were, we made it clear that we were committed to covering Americans with pre-existing conditions. But let me also say, in the state of Indiana, as you know, and I recount this, uh, I worked with the Obama administration when I was governor. And ultimately, had a 15-minute conversation on the tarmac 
of uh, the Evansville Airport with President Obama because I wanted, I didn't want to just expand Medicaid. I, Medicaid, we can have a long conversation about the failings of Medicaid. But I said, I wanted to reform Medicaid. I wanted to let people have health savings accounts. I wanted people to be able to choose their own doctor and have incentives for better health care. We had a small pilot program in Indiana, and I wanted to expand it. But the Obama administration initially was very opposed to that. But when I spoke to President Obama about it, I'll never forget on the tarmac in Evansville, he looked at me and said, Governor, I'm, I'm not philosophically opposed to what you're proposing. And it opened the door for us to work with his agencies, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services and your administration. And Indiana was able to expand and reform Medicaid coverage for some 350,000 Americans. Um, I, I, don't, it, I, I don't question your heart, and in many respects I share the same conviction you have about I don't ever want any American to go without, uh, without health care when they need it. Uh, but I, but what we were determined to do, and we did in Indiana, in fairness, with the support of the Obama administration, was reform Medicaid. We were able to expand it for families, and we called it Healthy Indiana Plan 2.0. And, and to this day, literally hundreds of thousands of Hoosiers are able to have their own first-dollar benefits, a health savings account. They have incentives for weight loss, for quitting smoking. It's improving lives. And, and probably would be unhappy if it went away. Second, it probably would be unhappy if that went away. But listen, where I'm, they're, they're so doing I. that thing to me that I hate, where they're telling me that I have to stop talking. But I, uh, but I can't. I, we, 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 and I got a million things I want to talk to you about. But we should talk about the the thing that has gotten so much attention, which is the way uh, your uh, vice presidency ended, and the situation at the Capitol on January sixth. And your role in it, you mentioned it earlier you early in the administration you know what you mentioned the tumultuous first weeks of the trump administration one of the things that came up was his insistence that despite the popular vote that showed he lost by three million that there were millions of illegal votes counted and he gave you the unenviable task of leading a commission to find those missing votes uh that never happened uh was there a point when this whole thing was evolving where you felt like going to him and saying, uh, Chief, we've been down this road before. Let's not do it again. I mean, because you must have learned a lot of lessons from that experience. It, it was shortly after Election Day that um, I encouraged the president, if all the legal challenges did not play out to make any difference in the outcome, that he should simply accept the result focus on that upcoming special election in Georgia and midterms, and if he wanted to run again, run again. Um, he didn't like that. I, but I will tell you, I will tell you that I shared the concern of millions of Americans about irregularities, but there was never evidence of widespread fraud, although mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was consistently alluded to. Um, nothing that would change the outcome of the election. Nothing that would change 60 the outcome. 60 courts of the threw this out. That's right. But but David, you're you know, you're an election expert. You know, the Supreme Court sequestered about 8,000 ballots in Pennsylvania that had been 
that had come in after the statutory deadline, uh, a year after the election. Biden won by 80,000 there, so that wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. It would not have changed the outcome of the election, but in Wisconsin, same goes. But there were the Supreme Court of Wisconsin found that there had been two different violations of laws with regard to early voting and unsupervised drop boxes. But So there were irregularities, right. but I don't think that there was evidence of fraud in any state that suggested a change in the outcome but of the election. But he did persuade a whole bunch of Americans that, there was, and that was what happened on January 6th. I know there were the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all those, but there were also like, you know, teachers and bankers and policemen and lawyers who came who thought they were doing their patriotic duty because they thought a crime against the Constitution was being committed that day. What Wasn't that the product of his making the comments and statements and his supporters behind him? about this? Wasn't that destructive? I think, I think there's no question that the president's rhetoric um, and that of, of many of his, uh, of his uh, advisors and allies um, fueled an expectation among the American people, ultimately with regard to my role. Yeah, he put you right in the that, center. Um, I'll never forget when Karen and I and our daughter Charlotte went with us to the Capitol on January 6th. And we were pulling into the Capitol in the motorcade right under the steps of the Senate. And I looked out and people were gathered just beyond a rope line, peacefully there to support what would be a, um, a legal and appropriate debate over objections that had been filed. It's important to note Democrats had filed objections to election results in the last three elections where a Republican had prevailed. There was nothing wrong with Republicans filing no, objections. Never in service of overturning the election, but yeah, go ahead. Well, it, but, but, um, uh, and, and there wasn't evidence of fraud in those cases, but then the Electoral Act, properly sponsored motions can be brought and debated. Mm, yeah, of course. Evidence of course. can be heard. But I remember, I remember looking out, and I write about it, and so help me God, I remember looking out of the car, and I, I turned to my daughter and, and saw people that were, cheering our motorcade as it arrived that had been the president had retweeted something called the pence card right before christmas that suggested and implied that i could unilaterally decide which electoral votes could be counted and which not and um, with a heavy heart i looked at my daughter and just said um, my heart went out to those people because i thought they're going to be so disappointed because they I knew there had not been evidence of fraud up to that very hour. Nothing, it, despite it had been promised, it never materialized. And I knew we would, have, we would have what I thought would be a useful debate that could lower the temperature in the country, to hear the, hear the issues around irregularities, set the table for election reform in the future in states around the country, but acknowledge that there was not sufficient fraud to change the outcome. But in the end, the violence that ensued yeah. disrupted all so, of Some of those people were hours later chanting, hang Mike Pence. And they were doing it because the president said you had let them down and let the Constitution down. And I know you've said a, a bunch of times that forgiveness is part of your faith tradition. And, uh, but um, forgiving is different than forgetting. And it's also different than saying, I forgive. And so therefore, you can, I, I'm, I could support you for high office again don't you i mean it's really hard for people to understand and you've heard this question a million times i can't think of a better way to phrase it to try and get you to answer it 
How could you vote for the guy? After what he did. I mean, every single person, every single person here appreciates what you did on January 6th, which was a remarkable act of, of uh, courage. Uh, but how could you not just acknowledge, I'm done. You, you're the most loyal vice president in my lifetime. Honestly, I don't, I'm not saying that disparagingly. I think loyalty is a great quality. And you're, you, know, you had his back, and he put a target on yours. Well, I, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to pretend about those moments, and in, in the book I write about them very candidly. When the tweet came across as rioters were ransacking the Capitol, the tweet came across at uh, 2.24 in the afternoon from the president attacking me. Uh, I was angry. Uh, his, his words were reckless. They endangered my family, and they endangered everyone at the Capitol. Um, but in that moment, David, um, yeah. he decided to be part of the problem. I right. was determined to put that out of my mind Understood. and work the problem. And working with Democrat and Republican leadership, we did our duty that day. In the days that followed, I, I understand. And I look, I'm... my. Literally, in my, in my faith tradition as a Christian, um, we try and pray a prayer almost every day to forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is not optional for a Christian. We're, the Bible says to forgive as the Lord forgave you. Um, and so I've, I've I hope I don't merit this, that treatment after this conversation. But. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've prayed for the grace to approach the waning days of the administration in that spirit. And when the president and I finally sat down a few days later, uh, I just sought to hear him out and mm-hmm. to be straightforward with him. But um, look, I, I, I continue to pray for the president. I continue to pray for the grace of forgiveness. But um, well, you, you said it's I, up to the Americans. I, I want to tell you, with regard to the future, I, I think we'll have better choices. I understand that. But, and you say it's up to the American people to hold him accountable. Uh, it is. Yeah. But you're an American people. Mm-hmm. You're an American person. You're going to step in that. Thank you. You're going to step in that polling booth, and you're going to have to make a decision. And based on those days, can you, in good conscience, punch the hole that says Donald Trump? Well, I, I, I would just say to you, I have great confidence in the American people. But I don't think that day will come. Okay, so I'm not going to pursue this at all. And I, I may, I, <laughs> you're, you're, I may you're, not just you're, be stepping a, in the voting pra- booth. I may be stepping in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And um, we're going to follow our calling wherever it leads, David. Yeah, but no. I, I'm absolutely confident let, that, look, I, let me say this. I, I think, um, I don't think anybody other than Donald Trump could have defeated Hillary Clinton in 2016. I just don't. I was with another candidate in the primary. I you know, I, yeah. I, I was out campaigning with Ted Cruz. He won all three counties in Indiana that I campaigned with him in. But given, Donald Trump won the other But you're 89. not saying that if, if he can, if he can win, th- I'll be for him. I, I know think you're not Republican primary voters chose the right candidate in 2016. I believe they will choose the right candidate in 2024. And I look forward to supporting and, that and man you don't or woman think it'll who be will him. be fitted to the times. You don't think it'll be him, though. Anyway, I'm not going <laughs> to... 
This is like, you're a professional. I'm not getting anywhere here. I just want to ask you a last question, uh, which is um, you've been asked to appear before the uh, prosecutors, federal prosecutors who are mm-hmm. examining January 6th. You've said you think everyone involved should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Mm-hmm. Given that, isn't it your obligation to, to do what you can to help them in that investigation? Well, first, there's two different inquiries in Washington, as you know, and um, I made it clear in recent weeks uh, that I would not participate in the January 6th committee. I know. I didn't want to go there because I understand you're... you're, well, I, you're I assume you would. You worked in the White House. You understand the unique relationship between the vice president and the president, and no vice president's ever been summoned to the Congress to speak about private deliberations with the president. And uh, what I would say to you Although is... Although you do in the book. Well... We do, but a matter before the Congress is different. It's different. Look, let me be clear about that. It was a good, good line on your part. I'm a professional, too. She is. <laughs> Fact. Fact check true. Um, look, I think the American people deserve my story. But Congress had no right to my testimony under the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. I mean, I have to tell you, the very title of the book comes from the oath that I took, that, that to support and defend the Constitution, it ended with a prayer, so help me God. Right. And what I would say to you about... Uh, the prosecutors are part of the executive branch. I would branch, say though. to you about the Justice Department inquiry, two things. Number one, I cannot put behind me years of politicization at the Justice Department that have been unfurled before the American people. I mean, the idea that you had FBI agents falsifying documents to gain warrants against individuals through the whole Russia collusion hoax. I mean, the, 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 the credibility, because it grieves me. I was on the Judiciary Committee for, for 12 years. It grieves me the way so many Americans have lost confidence in the Justice Department. I recently called out members of my own party that were talking about defunding the FBI. I said, that's not acceptable. Um, We need to support the men and women of the FBI, but hold the leadership accountable for decisions that they make that smack of politics. So that's the backdrop of this. But for me, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to my counsel about that, and we've come to no conclusion but again, for me, it will be recognizing unique obligations that I have under the Constitution of the United States, and that's how I'll sort through that decision. They, they could subpoena you, though. Uh, they certainly could, right. And, uh, but there are provisions of the Constitution that bear upon this, I'm told, and I'll reflect very deeply on that. Okay. We're out of time, and I just want to finish, Mr. Vice President, by saying one of the most moving pieces of video that I've seen in a very long time was uh, the video that Nancy Pelosi's daughter shot in which she captured a conversation between you and the speaker in the middle of the insurrection. And the uh, shared concern for, for our democracy and the humanity that you showed each other, I remember her saying to you, don't tell anybody where you are, really, really moved me. Because it spoke to what we, where we started in this conversation, that there are things bigger than the red team and the blue team. And uh, we have a common humanity 
We have a shared legacy as Americans. Uh, we have a gift in, 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 our, uh, in our Constitution. And that was all reflected in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for, for that. I want to thank you for being here and uh, for a, a, a really civil and, I think, enlightening conversation. Thank you, Dave. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.